written in this letter and because of what they had seen and what had happened to them. The Jews took it upon themselves to establish the custom that they and their descendants and all who joined them should without fail observe these two days every year in the way prescribed and at the time appointed. These days should be remembered and observed in every generation, by every family, and in every province, and in every city. And these days of Purim should never cease to be celebrated by the Jews, nor should the memory of them die out among their descendants. And John 16, 31 to 33. You believe at last, Jesus answered. But a time is coming, and has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home. You will leave me all alone. Yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. I have told you these things, so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Thank you, Sarah, for reading the Word of God this morning. Does it sometimes seem that God is absent in our everyday lives? Does it seem like the forces in the world have more power than He does? Do you get nervous about world developments and who's in power and where these developments are leading? I hope that Jesus' words that Sarah just read to us will sink in for you today. I hope that his words that I have told you these things, that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. You know, it's easy to be encouraged when we gather with other fellow Christians around the word of God, celebrating the work of Jesus, and experiencing God's presence together. But what about when we're not gathered, but are scattered? What about when we go to our own homes, to our own workplaces, to our own schools, to whatever we are doing, our own lives? Jesus knew that his followers would face this reality, and he encouraged them with these words that, so that they'd have peace, peace in their hearts. Trouble's normal. Kurt's already said that this morning, but just saying it again. Trouble is normal, and it may seem that God is not in control or he's forgotten you, but take heart. Now, take heart is like, don't be afraid, and... Uh, do not fear, and it's one of the most quoted, it's most, one of the most quoted Jesus quotes. In fact, uh, people have said that it's the most quoted thing in the Bible. Uh, the, the most quoted command for God's followers is not to be afraid. So take heart, don't be afraid. I have overcome the world, and God has not forgotten you, and his rescue mission in the world is marching on, and it's unstoppable. He's not forgotten us, he's with us, and he's still at work. So, I have a story within the greater story to tell this morning. Uh, let me just, uh, let, let me see if you can guess what story I'm going to talk about. All right. So, somewhere in the Middle East, there is a foolish king. He's under the influence of his evil advisor, the Grand Vizier who's made an evil plan that seems unstoppable. But fortunately, a brave hero from outside the palace joins forces with a beautiful young woman from inside the palace to stop his evil plan. What story am I talking about? 
<laughs> Aladdin and Esther. <laughs> you're right. Both of you are right. Those descriptions fit both stories equally well. And they're absolutely true about, did you know that Jafar, the grand vizier from the story of Aladdin, the Disney version anyhow, and Haman share the same title. Haman was the grand vizier. That's what the Persian, uh, that's what his position in the Persian uh, kingdom was. Very interesting. But Aladdin and Esther share very similar traits. And I'm, I've been amazed. Now, Esther precedes Aladdin. So Aladdin might have taken some of its story stuff from there, or just it might be, so it's, it's about a thousand years that Esther, the story of Esther happens before any story that resembles the story of Aladdin shows up in any of the literature. So Esther comes first. Um, this, is, this doll is not Esther. This is Jasmine, and it was given to uh, uh, our daughter. And um, uh, I was watching on Disney Plus the new reenactment. So there we go. There's old Jasmine from the 90s, and now they're doing real, Disney's taking all their uh, classic cartoons and they're turning them into real-life reenactments. So there's the new Jasmine that was just made recently. So we, I was watching the new video with my wife, and it just struck me that there was a lot of similarities between that and the story of Esther. And they left the old soundtrack in place, so all your favorite songs from the original Aladdin are there, and they, but they added one. Because in the old movie... Jasmine never sings on her own. She does duets with Aladdin, but Aladdin does most of the singing, and she, only, she doesn't get any. But she gets a solo in the new one, and it sounds like this. Oh, ah, you can't hear that, can you? She's singing to me. Anyhow, she gets a solo. The reason you can't hear her is because my wife is really smart about these toys. As soon as we get them, she finds the speaker and she tapes over it. That's a parenting tip that was worth the price of admission. When her uh, best friend uh, came to visit us, her best friend Lindley from high school, she's still singing, you can tell. It's important to tape over this one. I'm just going to let Jasmine sit down for a bit here. But when her best friend, Lindley, came to visit her and our kids were younger, her best friend thought it was, she didn't have kids herself. She thought it would be really great to give our kids recorders. <laughs> we met her in Regina and drove all the way back to Moose Jaw. And guess what we heard all the way back to Moose Jaw? So a few years later, when Lindley had children, we went to visit her in Regina and we brought her something just like that that you could press a button and the noise would go on and on and on. And they had to drive back to Calgary. So my wife may seem sweet, but she can be very vengeful. And uh, if I step out of line, I sleep with one eye open. I tell you, she's... Jasmine's song caught my attention. Let me read you the lyrics. I can't stay silent. Well, that's totally true about the doll. But I can't stay silent. This is the lyrics. I can't stay silent. Though they want to keep me quiet, and I tremble when they try it, all I know is that I won't go speechless. They took Jasmine from the original, and in the new one, made her even more like Esther. 
you know, there's a, this, I can't stay silent. Well, you know, Esther from the story of Esther thought of that as a real option. When she realized she was married to uh, a king who at a whim would get rid of his queen, he did that in the original story. We'll, we'll touch on the whole story in a bit. Uh, but he knew that at a whim, she could be deposed, she could be killed, she could be gotten rid of, depending on how he was feeling, and also that he had quite the drinking habit. You'll see that in the text as well. She thought of staying silent. She thought of that as a viable option. But her cousin Mordecai said, don't stay silent. Don't stay silent. Maybe God's raised you up for this kind of moment. If you don't, if you don't speak, if you don't vouch for the the Jewish people, God might raise up, surely God will raise up some sort of rescue from some other quarter, but, but maybe you're here for your voice to speak, uh, to step into this, this moment. Let me, I'll, I've got the text in front of me. I'll just read it to you. It says, For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But if you and your father's family, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you've become to your royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, Go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. And when this is done, I'll go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So initially she considered staying silent, but in the end she took a risk and she risked her life. So this is a great story. Steve's got a doll, girl power's on display, guys could have stayed home. No, 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 no. Here, I got something for the guys, okay? Check out the Persian Empire. Can we get a map of the Persian Empire? Okay, this is the Persian Empire at that time. Susa in the middle is the capital, and everything happens in Susa, okay? That's, that's the front and center. So the Persians are the world power at the time, and they've taken over Judea. You can see Judea there, which is where Jerusalem and and Judah and Israel were. They've taken over all this area. And, but they're, the up-and-coming new power is Greece. So you see that, that Greece is sort of outside of their reign. And um, I was reading this really interesting timeline. Again, there's tons of timelines being, because a lot of it's trying to piece together bits of history to figure out the timeline. And one scholar I was looking at, he was trying to take the story of Esther and fit it into the timeline. So they're saying, well, he's married to Xerxes, or Ahasuerus, or Xerxes, those are two different names, but he's married to Xerxes, and uh, I was like, Xerxes, that's the guy from the movie The 300. So let me just show you a visual here real quick, if I can get it. There we go. So this is what he probably looked like, but in the movie The 300, that's how they portray him. And now the history, the the writers of history said about Xerxes that he was tall and good-looking. And I suppose if that guy was dressed differently, we'd say he was good-looking. I'm not totally sure. But this is, has anyone seen the movie 300? You can admit it in church. It's okay. Okay, so basically, this is the the Spartans, Leonidas, and this is the Persians uh, with Xerxes. Now, they dressed him ridiculously. This is more what both of them would have looked like. That was the style of the day. But to be dramatic in Hollywood, they did this. But he was tall. He was good-looking. He was vain, very, very proud and arrogant. 
and uh, he liked wine an awful lot. And so this is the timeline that caught my attention. The guy said, he asks his wife Vashti to come before him after drinking for a whole bunch of time, and there's probably more to that story than is PG to tell, basically what might have been involved in all of that, but come, she refuses. He, she is deposed. She's taken, she can't be queen anymore because of that. At her whim, her queenship is over. Then they say, it's probably a couple years before Esther actually comes into the picture. This guy who's writing his timeline, he says, it's very possible that they go and have this battle, the Battle of Thermopylae, where 300 Spartans hold off the Persian Empire, and the Persians go back looking their wounds. They can't believe they lost to the Greeks. And that Xerxes comes home, I found this fascinating. I don't know if it's totally true, but I found this fascinating. He comes home and realizes... Oh, yeah, I got rid of my wife. I can't even get a comfort from my wife. I don't have a wife. And that that might have been actually the sequence where the whole bringing together all these girls to potentially find, you know, this beauty pageant to choose a wife for Xerxes might have happened. So I found that absolutely fascinating. Don't know if it's 100% true. Another sort of Bible geek fact or Bible geek, geek thing that I grabbed onto was the fact when you go to the next story, which Daisy will be tackling next week about Nehemiah, is that Nehemiah, when he's looking to go to Jerusalem, he's standing in front of the king with his queen sitting beside him. And some scholars have argued back and forth, is that Esther? Is Esther in the book of Nehemiah? And uh, I think probably not, unless she was there as the queen mother, which might, because of her age, it might possibly be that she was that. But nevertheless, Jewish people were having incredible influence in this kingdom of Persia. We've heard about Daniel and in the Babylonian kingdom and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and, and how Cyrus sent Ezra and Zerubbabel and all those guys back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. But the Jews were having incredible influence. But in this story, uh, it doesn't start out that way. So now I want you to have a good understanding of the story. So we're going to show a nine-minute video, and then I'm going to come with my commentary to, to end it all off. But I want you to understand the story. It's ten chapters. I can't read it all to you, but every chapter's got really great stuff into it. So we're going to summarize it with a nine-minute video. So go. The book of Esther. It's one of the more exciting and curious books in the Bible. The story is set over 100 years after the Babylonian exile of the Israelites from their land. And while some Jews did return to Jerusalem, remember Ezra and Nehemiah, many did not. And so the book of Esther is about a Jewish community living in Susa, the capital city of the ancient Persian Empire. The main characters in this story are two Jews, Mordecai and then his niece Esther. And then there's the king of Persia, who's something of a drunken pushover in this story. And then there's the Persian official Haman, the cunning villain. Now this is a curious book in the Bible, mainly for the fact that God is never even mentioned, not once. Which might strike you as kind of odd. I mean, isn't the Bible about God? But this is a brilliant technique by the author, who's anonymous, by the way. It's an invitation to read this story looking for God's activity, and there are signs of it everywhere. The story is full of very odd, quote, coincidences and ironic reversals, and it all forces you to see God's purpose at work, but behind the scenes. Let's just dive into the story. The book opens with the king of Persia throwing two elaborate banquet feasts that last a total of 187 days. And it's all for the grandiose purpose of displaying his greatness and splendor. 
On the last day of the banquet feast, he's really drunk, and he demands that his wife, Queen Vashti, appear at the party to show off her beauty. She refuses, and so in a drunken rage, the king deposes Vashti and makes the silly decree that all Persian men should now be the masters of their own homes. Then he holds a beauty pageant because he wants to find a new queen. This is like a really bad soap opera. But it's right here that we're introduced to Esther and Mordecai. Esther hides her Jewish identity and enters the beauty pageant and wins. And the king is so obsessed with Esther that he elevates her to become the new queen of Persia. Now after this, and even more serendipitous, is the fact that Mordecai just happens to overhear two royal guards plotting to murder the king. And so he informs Esther, who in turn informs the king, and Mordecai gets credit for saving the king's life. Now, right here from the beginning, God's not mentioned anywhere, but this all seems providentially ordered. What is it that God's up to? You have to keep reading. We're next introduced to Haman, who's not actually a Persian. He's called an Agagite. He's a descendant of the ancient Canaanites. Remember for Samuel chapter 15. The king elevates Haman to the highest position in the kingdom, and he demands that everybody kneel before Haman. Well, when Mordecai sees Haman, he refuses to kneel, which of course fills Haman with rage. And when he finds out that Mordecai's Jewish, Haman successfully persuades the king to enact this crazy decree to destroy all of the Jewish people. And to decide the date of the Jews' annihilation, Haman rolls the dice. A die is called pur in Hebrew. Tuck that away for later. Eleven months later, on the 13th of Adar, all the Jews will die. Haman and the king then have a drinking banquet to celebrate their really horrible decision. So the focus now turns to Mordecai and Esther, who are the only hope for the Jewish people. They make a plan that Esther is going to reveal her Jewish identity to the king and ask him to reverse the decree. But approaching the king without a royal request is, according to Persian law, an act worthy of death. So in a key statement, Mordecai, he's confident that even if Esther remains silent, that deliverance for the Jews will arrive from another place. And then Mordecai wonders aloud. He says, who knows? Maybe you've become queen for this very moment. Esther responds with bravery, and she purposes to go to the king with her amazing words, if I perish, I perish. Now, in what unfolds, we watch the ironic reversal of all of Haman's evil plans. So Esther hosts the king and Haman at a first banquet, and she says that she wants to make a special request of both of them at an exclusive banquet the following day. So Haman leaves the banquet totally drunk, and he sees Mordecai in the street. He fumes with anger, and he orders that a tall stake be built so that Mordecai can be impaled upon it in the morning. It seems like things can't get any worse for the Jews and for Mordecai. But all of a sudden, the story pivots. It just so happens that night, the king, he can't sleep. And he has the royal chronicles read to him for good bedtime reading. And he just happens to hear about how Mordecai had saved the king's life. He had totally forgotten. So in the morning, Haman enters to request Mordecai's execution. And the king in that moment orders Haman to honor Mordecai publicly for saving his life. So now Haman has to lead Mordecai around the city on a royal horse, telling everyone to praise him. Now this moment in the story, it's a pivot for the whole book. 
It begins Haman's downfall and Mordecai's rise to power. Watch how this works. The day after is Esther's second banquet. So the king and Haman arrive, and Esther informs the king that first of all, she's Jewish, and second, that Haman has enacted a decree to murder her and to murder Mordecai, who saved his life, and to murder all of the Jews. Now the king's had a lot to drink, so when he hears this news, he goes into yet one more drunken rage, and he orders that Haman be impaled on the very stake he made for Mordecai. It's ironic and a grisly way for Haman to go. Haman's execution, however, doesn't solve the problem of the decree to kill all of the Jews. So the focus now turns to Esther and Mordecai as they make a plan to reverse the decree. They discover that the king can't revoke a decree that he's already made. So instead, the king commissions Mordecai to issue a counter-decree. On the appointed day that all of the Jews were supposed to be killed, the 13th of Adar, now the Jews are ordered to defend themselves and to destroy any who plotted to kill them. Then Mordecai, Esther, and Jews everywhere hold banquets and feasts to celebrate this new decree, and Mordecai is elevated to a seat beside the king. Eventually, the decreed day comes, and the Jews triumph over their enemies. First, they destroy Haman's family, and then any other Persian officials who had joined in Haman's plot. And then on a second day, they get permission to destroy any who plotted against them throughout the entire kingdom. This results in joy and celebration as the Jews are rescued from annihilation. The story then tells about how Esther and Mordecai established by decree this annual two-day feast of Purim to commemorate their deliverance from destruction. And the name of the feast comes from Haman's dice. Remember, Purim. The book concludes with a short epilogue as Mordecai is elevated to second in command in the kingdom and we are told now of his royal greatness and splendor as the Jews thrive in exile. Now, step back. Notice how this whole story has been designed. The story was full of moments of ironic reversal, but we can now see the whole story is structured as an ironic reversal, right down to the details. So the king's splendor and feasts and decrees are mirrored by Mordecai's splendor and feasts and decrees at the end. Esther and Mordecai, they first saved the king, but now in the end, they save all of the Jews. Then you have Haman's elevation and edicts and banquet that gets reversed by Mordecai's elevation and edict and banquet. And then at the center, you have Esther and Mordecai's planning scenes, and then Esther's two banquets that act as a frame around the greatest moment of reversal in the whole story, Haman's humiliation and Mordecai's exaltation beautiful. Another fascinating feature of this book is the moral ambiguity of the characters. There's a lot of drinking and anger and sex and murder of which Mordecai and Esther are a part. Not to mention their violation of many commands in the Torah like marrying Gentiles or eating impure foods. And so the story is not putting Mordecai and Esther forward as moral example as if it endorses all of their behavior. But they are put forward as models of trust and hope when things get really bad. And so the book of Esther comes back to that question with which we begin, why God is not mentioned. The message of this book seems to be that when God seems absent, when his people are in exile, when they're unfaithful to the Torah, does this mean that God is done with Israel? Has God abandoned his promises? And the book of Esther says, no. It invites us to see that God can and does work in the real mess and moral ambiguity of human history. And he uses the faithfulness of even morally compromised people to accomplish his purposes. And so the book of Esther asks us to be willing to trust God's providence even when we can't see it working. And to hope that no matter how bad things get, God is committed to redeeming his world. 
And that's what the book of Esther is all about. All right. Do you feel like you got a better handle on it? Anyone feel like they got a little clearer picture? Yeah, okay, good. The genius of the book of Esther is that it doesn't mention God. You say, that's the genius of it? Or mention what God is doing. And, and again, they say, why is that so great? And I think, for me, why is that so great? Because most of life is like that. Like when we read the book of Ezra or other books that preceded it, mostly you get a narrator telling you, this is what God's doing, this is what God's doing, this is how God's working, this is what people are thinking. But the Persian style of writing, and the Bible is made up of many different genres of literature, the Persian style of writing doesn't actually lend to telling you that. It just tells you what people do. And so this, this story is written in a certain style, is written in a certain style, but it also it leaves us, it, it, it resonates with how our lives are experienced. Like, do you have a narrator in your life that tells you what God is doing? Like, when you're just going about your everyday life, do you, is there a voice that says, and now the Lord is moving Steve to eat toast? <laughs> no, we don't have that in our lives. And this is not a problem with toast, but it's a problem when we get into scenarios and we look like, hey, it looks like evil's winning. It looks like God's absent. It looks like his purposes in the world or especially in Moose Jaw or wherever we are at in my workplace or in my family are not advancing. And what is God up to? What is God doing? We don't have a narrator like the rest of Scripture, so our lives are a lot like the story of Esther. One of my favorite verses, and I forgot to give it to the tech guy, so I'll just read it to you, is Romans 11.33. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. So do you understand all the wisdom and the knowledge of God? I don't. Can you, by searching, figure out why he made his, this judgment call or that judgment call? I can't. Can you trace his activity and declare with absolute confidence that you know exactly what, what he has done and why he has done it? No. Nobody can. His paths are beyond our tracing out. I have to remind myself all the time. Now, this doesn't mean that we're not trying to figure out what he's doing. Or I, I feel like we're just like detectives, right? We're trying to see, spot his activity. Right? So when I report this morning that Art's cancer scores have gone down to negligible or nothing, or that Andrea's nerve and back pain is gone, I say, well, Steve, what's God doing? I don't know. I don't know. I got some hunches that God's involved in these things. What is his grand plan? What is the things he's working on? I don't know. His ways are beyond searching out. Like, I don't know what he's doing. But I sure, can, I sure can tell that he's at work. I don't know all that he's doing. He's not revealing all that he's doing. And he doesn't owe that to me or to you. He doesn't owe that to us. But I can tell that he's at work. And so in the story of Esther, you go to that story and you go, wow, there's no, it doesn't mention God, it doesn't tell you what God is doing. But there's stuff in there that if you're alert, you can see his fingerprints all over the book. Right? Like, for example, all the coincidences. The, wow, that just so happened to happen. Let me give you seven. 
Esther happens to win the Miss Persia contest, or whatever they called it. Just happened to. They got women from all over, all over the empire in this contest, and she just happened to win. An orphan girl raised by her cousin, living right in Susa. She's from there. Mordecai just happens to overhear a plot to kill the king and save the king's life. The casting of lots, the pure or the dice by Haman to kill the Jews, just happens to be one of the latest dates in the year. If he rolled the dice and it was like, oh, next week, they would have died that week. No chance to save them, right? The, the king just happens to welcome Esther into his presence after ignoring her for a month. The king just so happens to be patient with Esther to agree to come to not just one banquet, but to a second banquet. At the end of her first banquet, you think a king is used to having his whims pleased at every moment could have just said, okay, 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 just tell me, what this, what's this about? Well, I want you to come to a second banquet. No, 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 no. Tell me now. No, he's like, okay, I'll come to the second banquet. Just so happened. That had to happen for all this to work together. Uh, the king just so happens to suffer insomnia one night, and in his insomnia, he just so happens to have his journal read about his reign. And they just so happen to read about Mordecai saving his life, and he just so happens to find out that nothing's been done to reward Mordecai. God, where are you in this book? <laughs> I think he's right there on display. The king just so happens to show a deep concern for Esther's life. Even though he has a harem of other women, when she says, I'm Jewish, this law, it will kill me, she care, he cares deeply about it. You know what? Someone wants to find a coincidence this way. He said, when God decides to act anonymously. <laughs> Do you see, can you see I mean, I, I'm not saying can you trace out everything God's doing, but can you see hints that God is at work in your life? Can you see the small mercies or the common graces or the things that have, he's allowed in your life or, uh, or that are happening in your life and say, I think God's at work. I think God is at work. There's not just an example of luck or random chance. It's an example of God working his eternal purposes behind the scenes. I phoned my mom in preparation for this message because I knew she had prepared a message on this topic last spring. Now, it was for a ladies' group in, in the town of Surus, Manitoba, and then she got a call to go teach school, so she didn't end up delivering her message. So I said, well, give me your notes. Save me some time. So what's your big takeaway? And she said, I studied it for weeks and months, and I thought, well, wow, wow, it's going to be amazing. And she, she talked about how Esther was, all the things Esther did right. She was good at recognizing and submitting to authority. She respected Mordecai, Haggai the eunuch. She took his advice. She won others, order, others over. She was like Miss Congeniality in the, in the contest because people liked her. She respected the king. Uh, she had a good sense of timing. Um, she had a good strategy. She chose good outfits. My mom I would have never picked that out of the story, but that's in there, right? The sm but the I said, well, so what, what's your biggest takeaway? She said, you know what? I think the smartest thing Esther did, and that's where I started, got out my pen to write. The smartest thing that Esther did was she asked the other Jews to fast and pray while her, he, she and her maids fasted and prayed. She said, I think it's the smartest thing she did. 
Because how do you, how do you make sure that the king's going to receive you? This was the thing, that she almost didn't speak up. Because if she goes in there and the king doesn't hold out his royal scepter, she's dead. How do you make sure that that king's going to hold out his royal scepter? You can dress up pretty. You can, you can pick your timing. You can do a lot of things. But you know, you have no guarantee. And so they fasted and they prayed for three days. And my, and my mom said, I think that's the smartest thing she did. Let me read you a verse. Proverbs 21.1. It says, in the Lord's hand, the king's heart is a stream of water. And he channels it towards all who please him. Can you change the king's heart? Can you change the government's heart? Your, can you change the mayor's heart? Can you change your boss's heart? Can you change? No, but you can pray. And God can direct their hearts. God can change their hearts. This gives me great hope because I think of certain leaders I don't like. I'm not telling you which ones. But when I don't like a leader, oh, it's hard to pray for them. But you know what? The Lord has that leader's heart in his hand, and it's like a stream of water, and he could channel it any which way he pleases. So the smartest thing my mom said that Esther did was she said, let's fast and let's pray. So you see Mordecai's faith on one hand. He says, I think deliverance is going to come from somewhere. It might not be you, Esther, but I think it's going to come. He's believing in the providence of God. He's believing that God is going to work in their, in, on their behalf somehow. Doesn't know how. Can't trace it out. But he believes. And then you've got Esther saying, well, let's fast and let's pray. Right? It doesn't say the word pray, but you don't fast in those times without praying. That's, that would have been their, their tradition. My mom's, I'll read you the last bit of what I wrote of her observation. The smartest thing she, do, she did was to reach out to others for their help. Because only God could change the heart of a king. And then my mom said this. She said, she's 85. She said, in all my years, her observation was that people who ask other people to pray for them tend to get more answers to prayer. That sounds pretty reasonable, doesn't it? People who tend... When she told me that, I was like, oh, light bulb went on. You know what my mom does? She phones, she has seven kids. She phones us all. And you know what she'd ask us often on the phone? She'd say, would you pray for me for this? Okay, mom, sure. No, now. <laughs> okay, I can do that. I prayed for my mom tons because she's asked. If I compare that to if she'd never asked, it'd be a lot less prayer for my mom. But she asks her kids all the time, would you pray for me? Sure, mom, now. Would you pray for me now? On the phone. Yeah, okay. I think one of the best things you might do this morning is after the service, come up to one of the prayer team and say, would you pray for me? Might be one of the smartest things you do today or that you do all week. Heck, for some of us, all month. Like, seriously, sometimes we don't have a great month. Just ask. Just ask. So here's God, and he said to Abraham, we're going through the story, right? He said, I'm going to bless the nations through you. And so here's the people the descendants of Abraham, through which is going to come this incredible promise to, to bless all the nations of the world. And you know that, because we've been telling you, that's mainly about Jesus. That's about Jesus coming. I mean, there's other ways in which the Jewish people have blessed the world. Right? Did you know that they won, hey, they've won 20%? Jewish people have won 20% of all the Nobel Peace Prizes? 
You know that? In 2014, they won all of them. There was 10 to win that year, and either Jewish people or residents of Israel won all of them. That's about 100 times what they should win statistically. I just throw that out there. That spooked me a little bit when I read that. I was like, whoa, 20%? Wow, they got a good thing going. I guess they do bless the world in other ways, but the biggest blessing of the world through Abraham and his descendants is Jesus. Don't miss that. Don't miss that. It's Jesus, right? It's the coming of Jesus, that, that God was going to send the Messiah. So if you were the enemy of Jesus, if you're the enemy of God, and you wanted to come against what he's doing, what would you want to do? Well, you'd want to wipe out the descendants of Abraham. Does that ring historically true? Haman was an Amalekite. His people were the first of the Canaanite tribes to, wipe, to try to wipe out the children of Israel. They were the first ones who met them when they came and, and made war against them. So he came by it honestly when he decided, I don't just hate Mordecai who won't bow. I hate all of his people, and I'm going to get a law in place that they'll be wiped out of the entire Persian Empire. And that's, Haman came before Herod. Remember what Herod was going to do? When Jesus was born, he wanted to wipe out all the infants in Bethlehem. Everyone under the age of two. See, we got Haman, Herod. Oh yeah, Pharaoh. I miss Pharaoh. He's throwing all the male babies into the Nile River. Does it seem like there's a plot here? I'm not even talking about Hitler. It seemed like a six-day war. How did the Israelites survive the six-day war? They were going to be pushed into the ocean, basically, when all of those nations surrounded them attacked, and somehow they won that thing. I think it's easy to see that there's an animosity towards these people, and yet there's a God who's rescued them. Romans 8.28, this is a verse we, I mean, we all should have memorized, but I, I think it's really important to dig into it. It says that we know in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. And the Jewish people had an incredible calling on their lives. But so do you. But so do you. So let me read the second verse that, that, that goes with it. It says, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that they that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And I always simplify this verse because it's got too much theological language to be helpful sometimes. God knows you. He foreknew. He, he knows you. In fact, he knew you in the womb. And in fact, he had things planted in, for your life, things for you to do and be a part of and good works for you to carry out before you were born, even before you were conceived. God knows you. And then it says predestined. So let me simplify that. He's got a destiny for you. He's got things for you to do. He says he's working for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. God is calling you to join him in a partnership working towards his purposes in the world. So what are those purposes? Well, the verses tell us some more. It says to be conformed to the image of his son. One of the purposes is very personal, that he wants to change you to become like his son. God wants to change you to become like Jesus in your character. But it's more than that. And then it goes on to tell you that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. It's not just that he wants to make you like Jesus. He wants to make many people like Jesus. In fact, there are people that don't even know Jesus. That he's drawing to himself so they can be in a relationship with God and they can be transformed 
And what he's, bringing, he's building a great big global family out of the many nations. And he's making them brothers and sisters. And he's taking down all the barriers of racism and, and ethnic uh, uh, despising each other. He's taking it all down. And he's great, building one great big spiritual family across the globe. Oh, yeah, right. He told Abraham, through you, I'm going to bless all the nations of the world, right? This is an ancient thing. So God makes that promise to Abraham 1,500 years before Esther is on the scene. But Esther and Mordecai, when they had the chance, when everyone had the chance to go back to Jerusalem, to be where the temple was, and to, to be that representation of God in Israel, to show the world what it was like to relate to this, this God, they didn't go. In fact, 90% of the Jews didn't go home. They were the dispersed Jews, the diaspora is the word for it, but they were the ones spread out all over the world. And, and, and maybe they weren't following all the Jewish customs anymore. And, maybe they, and you know what? I could easily be when you get to that moment where it's like, and now we're going to wipe out the Jews. There's going to be a day at the end of the year where everyone can kill the Jews and take their stuff. That if you are a Jew living in that time, you might ask this question. Are we still called of God? Does God still remember us? Are we disqualified somehow? Maybe it's because we didn't go home and build the temple. Maybe we should have done that. And does God still care about us? Does God still have a heart for his people that he once said were his treasured possession? And in those moments, those moments are not foreign. I mean, it's not just for Jewish people. Those are moments are real to us. Those moments where you feel forgotten. Does God notice me? You might even be sitting here in this crowd this morning, and that's what you feel. You feel like, does God notice me? Well, I noticed those people that we heard about some healings or some things that happened in people's lives, great report. He noticed them, but does God notice me? I tell you, God knows you. He's got a destiny for you. He wants you to become like Jesus in your character. And he wants you to join with other like-minded believers to expand this global family of God that he's building all over the world. He knows you and he's got a calling on your life. And so even Esther and even Mordecai, and I love how the video said, they weren't perfect in their moral examples. There's lots of things you can take from them and go, Good for them. I think the biggest one is pray, fast, and act. <laughs> or pray, fast, and obey. That's probably the biggest thing you could take out of Esther's story of what to do. But they weren't perfect. And you might feel like, man, I'm not perfect. My life's not perfect. I'm sort of disqualified. Does God see me? Or will he only notice me when I've got everything all together? You know what? God has used some awfully broken people in his plan. God has used some people that didn't have it all together, but they simply had faith that God might use them, and they trusted him. In fact, God used, has used people in history that I would never have picked if I was the one making the list. He is more gracious than I am. He's more gracious than you are, too. So when you face that moment, when you say... I'm confident when I'm gathered or I'm more confident when I'm in church or I'm more confident when I'm around other Christians. But when I'm out there, I don't know what God's doing and it's hard to have faith. Let me give you Jesus' words again. A time is coming and in fact has come when you will be scattered. Each to your own home. You could say business or classroom or 
sphere of influence in the, in the community. You'll leave me all alone, Jesus said. Yet I'm not alone. The Father's with me, and that's something we could also say. I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Let's stand. Lord, I thank you for the great reversal of fortunes that exists in the story of Esther. And it is just a small, little bitty snapshot of the incredible reversal of fortunes that happened in the story of Jesus. You took what the enemy meant for evil and turned it for our good. You took a moment that looked like where the enemy had won. God on a cross, God in a tomb, how could that possibly be victory? And it seems like that would be the moment where all the forces of hell would, would, would rejoice that they had won. And yet that was the turning point. That was the turning point for all of us. That's the turning point we all look back to again and again as followers of Jesus. That that was the, the point where the tables were turned. And that was, that seeming victory of the enemy was the greatest victory over the enemy. So, Lord, we stand in that. We stand in that, that when we don't see what you're doing and when it seems like all is lost, when it seems like things are going the wrong way, that you are at work. And you're working out your big story, and you're inviting us in our small story to join you in it. And so, Lord, we want to just say yes to joining you in the big story. That you do have a calling on our lives to join you in what you are doing. Lord, we, we, we got lots of projects on the go. But none of them come close to the project you've got on the go. The thing that you're working out in this world. I thank you that you see belong our, be, beyond uh, our limited vision. And you see so much more. And I thank you for the people that you see in this city. People that aren't hearing this, but they're not forgotten either. And you have a heart for them. And you're wooing them. And you're drawing them to, to, to yourself. And you're working behind the scenes for their good, their eternal good. And so, Lord, we want to join you in that. We want to fully partner with you as much as we possibly can. So, Lord, if we set our sights on just our story and we've got discouraged, or we set our sights just on our story and we're scheming and dreaming, but it isn't big enough. It isn't actually worth the life that you've given us or worth the life that you gave for us. Lord, lift our vision. Lift our vision to see what you're doing in the world today and help us to join and partner with you. We ask that in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, let's, let's worship. Prayer teams are going to come. You know what I said about prayer teams. Might be the smartest thing you do all week. Okay? And we'll officially dismiss. God bless you. Let's worship and that's how we'll end.